Please go ahead and open your Bibles back up to 2 Samuel 18. I'd like to uh, start today with a question. And I think it's a question that could very well be the driving question of our lives, whether we realize it or not. So the question is, what do you think your life is worth? Or how about, what's anyone else's life actually worth? I'd say this uh, question essentially haunts everyone in one form or another. And it pretty much pervades every inch of our culture right now. Because in practice, whether consciously or unconsciously, we're constantly trying to measure ourselves or others up against this question, right? What's my worth? What's your worth? Everyone thinks we're talking about it right now in terms of identity. But I think it's, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. What lies beneath is the question about worth. And the problem is we just can't seem to agree on how to answer these kinds of questions, which leads to much confusion, conflict, and despair. After all, consider all the different ways we try to size ourselves up or others up. I'll just list a few. Maybe they'll sound familiar. How about how much money or stuff someone has? Or how elite someone's social status or rank is? This happens even in the church, by the way. How beautiful or handsome someone is or isn't? Or how about competent someone is at a certain task or skill? or even how much suffering or hardship we've endured at the hands of others. Which one of these do you spend a lot of energy appraising your own worth by? Good diagnostic or, or way to figure that out is, uh, think about the last time you experienced uncontrollable jealousy. <laughs> Might be a big clue. So it almost goes without saying, we are a people obsessed with trying to discern our own and other people's worth. Now, mercifully, we come to a passage today in 2 Samuel 18 that offers some, some real insight into this very important question. What's our worth? But it begins by first reframing the question, because the question is not ultimately, what do we think our lives are worth? Rather, the question that leads to some true, reliable answer that we can all actually build our lives upon is this question. What is our life worth to God? How does our creator, the one who gives life and breath to everything, how does he appraise our worth? Now, what's surprising today is that today's passage actually centers the, the answer around a story about the death of a worthless man. Namely, a man named Absalom, who is murdered on account of being deemed a worthless, horrible human being. And yet, we're also told that God's king, David, still sees something of real worth in Absalom even though he has every reason not to see any worth in this man. And in the end, the only thing that will make sense of all this for us 
will be this amazing glimpse that we're given into the Father's heart. Not just David's, but also the Lord's. But before we dive in, I just want to quickly recap where we last left off. And that's basically where uh, King David and all those loyal to him had been on the run, right, from this rebel son, Absalom, who has declared war against David and is basically trying to seal his throne. And after this long, arduous, exhausting march from Jerusalem, David and his people have finally arrived They've crossed the, the River Jordan, and they've arrived and settled in the city of Mahanaim. But the danger is far from over for David. Absalom is still in hot pursuit. And what we have today in chapter 18 is the big showdown, the end game. You know, that's going to finally settle this question once and for all. Who will be king of Israel? Now, with respect to that very question, we see something hopeful right from the start, right? Uh, David is actually acting like a king. We know he's been kind of passive and, and lackadaisical before, but here he is, weary, humiliated, downcast about the state of his household, his circumstances, but he seems to be trusting God and doing what he needs to do, right? He's taking this royal initiative, he's getting his army in order, and he plans to lead them into battle. In fact, this is what he tells his army at the end of verse 2. I myself will also go out with you. Now as noble, and I think as courageous as this is, uh, David's army doesn't think it's actually a very wise move. In fact, um, they push back because Absalom really only has one target or objective in mind with all this. And that is to kill David. Look at verse 3 with me, where David's men convince him to stay back. Verse 3. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. So in this specific case, the king's life is worth countless lives, right? Since David is the only reason for this battle anyway, makes no sense to put him at unnecessary risk. King David sensibly agrees to this, but he goes on to give this really confusing command to his armies, which is, David commands his armies to protect the very man that is out to kill him and many of them. Their worst enemy, Absalom, protect him. Which leads me to my first point, which is God's king deals gently with his enemies. Look at me at verse, look with me at verse 5, where David, in front of all the people, commands his armies to deal gently with Absalom. Verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Now, one thing that's intriguing about David's command to deal gently is that in the Hebrew, uh, this verb could also mean to cover or to protect from harm which is precisely what makes this command so 
confusing. Who in the world has heard of a gentle army, right, that covers and protects its enemies? But one very important thing to understand here is that David isn't asking them to deal gently with Absalom for Absalom's sake. Because David commands them, deal gently with him for my sake. For my sake. It has nothing to do with how good or bad a person Absalom is. It's clear that he's a villain. But David asks, do this for me. And who Absalom is for me. Deal gently with this rebel sinner for my sake. Yes, he is wayward, but he is still my son. So, men, when you see him, see him as I see him. Not as you see him, but as I see him. Now you might be wondering at this point, has David's love and partiality toward his son just completely blinded him to true justice and righteousness? Yeah, that, that could very well be a possibility. But consider this possibility. Maybe David's gentleness here could also have something to do with the fact that David knows quite well himself what it's like to be a no-good terrible, rotten sinner who is also very much the villain at one point in the story. He also happened to be the recipient of the Lord's discipline as well as his unprecedented mercy and love. Maybe that's where his heart is coming from. So maybe, just maybe, it's one sinner who has received grace upon grace, seeking to show similar grace to another sinner, a chip off the old block that desperately needs it. But this still presents this impossible tension, doesn't it? How can a worthless enemy like Absalom be brought to justice while Absalom the beloved son, be brought back into relationship. How's that going to work? How's that going to be possible? Well, this is where David's right-hand man, his commander Joab, enters into the story with a decisive answer about what must be done. And as we'll see, Joab sees no way for Absalom to be redeemed at this point. The only option left is to bring him to justice or at least uh, Joab's own broken interpretation of justice. Which, me, which leads me to the second part of this message, which I have titled, The Tale of Two Rebels, Absalom and Joab. From basically verse 6 on, we're told about the big battle with Absalom and his armies. Uh, but what's surprising here is that we're actually told very little about the battle, this big climactic endgame. It's just summed up in two verses where we're told basically that the battle took place in a dense forest of, of Ephraim and that Absalom's army lost horribly, right? Losing about 20,000 men and that most of the losses were inflicted by the forest rather than the sword. 
Um, this may sound like hyperbole, but even nowadays, modern warfare on unforgiving forest terrain, I've read, can be quite difficult. Right? It's so easy to get disoriented, isolated, lost, uh, especially if it's dark. You're, you're really vulnerable to a lot of guerrilla tactics, ambushes, feints, traps, uh, on top of all the unfortunate accidents that just happen in nature, right, as they did to Absalom. This reminds me of the one time that I got lost in the hellish forest of Ikea. Uh, it was way too late. Uh, pouring rain and the store had been basically closed for the night. Most of the workers were gone already. I was waiting for over an hour for this couch. And after they finally brought it out, I could not find a worker to tell me where the cargo elevator to the parking garage was. And at one point, I somehow ended up on the roof of the store. Uh, and yes, the, the, the parking garage was in the basement. Um, I'm wondering to myself, oh Lord, is this how it's gonna end? Freezing alone to death on the roof of an Ikea. Yeah. Before I even get to assemble this couch. Uh, but by God's grace, and no thanks to the employees of Ikea Stoughton, Massachusetts, uh, I made it back to my family that night, put together the couch, and enjoyed a bunch of other Swedish junk I probably shouldn't have bought. <laughs> um, now, returning to our passage, what becomes clear is that Absalom has no business whatsoever riding into the forests of Ephraim. He's really kind of the picture of a sinner who has gotten way over his head, going into the woods without any mindfulness to the thorns and thickets that await him, right? But there he went anyway, arrogantly pursuing power, pleasure, glory, with no fear of the Lord or his anointed king, probably presuming way too much on all that he's gotten away with up to that point. Once again, he's kind of this snapshot of all rebel sinners. And we're shown, once again, how without fail, how such a life always comes to an abrupt and tragic end. Look with me at verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. So, if you remember Absalom, we've been told he's handsomer than all of us, right? With the most glorious head of hair any man could have. And he gets spooked by some of David's soldiers, which causes him to ride right into the branches of an oak where he gets trapped by his head. And he's left dangling helplessly, would-be glorious future king. And his dumb mule rides away, <laughs> probably to get help or not. I don't. Now, many commentators point out the powerful symbolism in all this. First, the royal mule moves on without him, symbolizing how his royal aspirations have also moved on without him. 
And then Absalom gets his head, the symbol of uh, authority and strength. Gets caught helplessly in a tree, which echoes Deuteronomy 21, where we're basically told, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, interestingly, one of uh, David's servants saw all this happen to Absalom, and he reports it back to his commander, Joab, who's another proud man that we're going to see rebel, right? And that's when we learned that even though Joab had clearly heard David's command to deal gently with Absalom, Joab has no intention of obeying. And if you've been following this series, you know that uh, Joab is a take-charge kind of guy, right? Unlike David, Joab has never wavered as a decisive man of action. He's the kind of gifted leader I think many of us would want in charge wherever because he's someone who gets things done efficiently and with excellence, doesn't waste time. Let's not kid ourselves. We're drawn like moths to a flame to such people because they seem to have what we don't. The answers to our most pressing problems a confident vision of, of, of the future. They know what to do. They seem to just know. We feel this sense of hope and security when we're around these people. Joab for president. Or how about pastor? But here's the problem, and here's why he shouldn't be your pastor. He's not a man of the king's word. He's a harsh, unfaithful man. That's how he gets things done. Which is why Joab tries to entice this soldier, right? Hey, if you would have just killed Absalom, don't you know I would have given you a fat stack of silver and a commemorative belt? And that's really what, you know, it, that'd be enough to entice most men, I think, to kill another guy. That's what prize fighting is, I think. But thankfully, and unlike Joab, this soldier has heard the word of the king and he's taken it to heart, which means he's not falling for Joab's deception or his fraudulent rewards. Soldier even sees right through Joab. He says basically something to the effect of, you would have just thrown me under the bus anyway and made me a scapegoat. And this is the moment this is that moment where he gets the pushback that, that Joab decides to take matters into his own hands yet again, as he so often likes to do, right? Decides to deal with Absalom himself. Look, at, look with me at verse 14, 14. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. There's that efficient time management. And he took three javelins in his hand, and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So Joab takes these three javelins, these rods, thumps Absalom in the chest, which is translated heart here, uh, which likely just dislodges him from the tree. And then Absalom is brutally finished off by a bunch of his soldiers. Victory. 
victory. He blows the trumpet, signaling an end to all the fighting, which is now moot since Absalom is dead. And then the soldiers give Absalom this desecrating, profane burial by throwing him into a pit and then piling a, a, a heap of rocks on top, a burial that, that biblically is only for the most accursed men. This curse began on the tree, and it ends even worse as he descends into the pit. And all that's left behind, right, is this pillar, supposedly, this monument that, that Absalom had built up for himself. And that's what an ambitious rebel's legacy is, I think, at the end of the day. A pathetic, self-made, self-rewarded memorial that only ends up showcasing a failed life. Sadly, I think many of us uh, ambitious types can spend so much of our lives without knowing it, essentially pursuing the same thing, doing the same thing, building these sad, or what will be sad, vain monuments to ourselves, trying to prove or show our worth. What's the point in the end? Now in Joab's mind, Absalom's demise is probably good riddance and mission accomplished. Uh, the war's over and we won. But it doesn't change the fact that Joab is still a rebel. He has rebelled against the king. This was outright disobedience of the king's command, as well as a heinous personal betrayal. Joab's role in Absalom's death is especially ironic when you remember that back in chapter 14, Joab was the guy that actually tried to bring Absalom back from exile to Jerusalem. You recall that? Where he made up this elaborate ruse to try to trick David? He was convinced back then and now, I know what's best for David's kingdom. I know what's best. If you've been following along in the series, you know that uh, Joab has been this consistent example of someone who calls David, Lord, Lord, but often ignores his word, as if he somehow knows better, and always justifies his, re his rebellion as if the good somehow outweighs the bad. In this case, look, Absalom is dead. Uh, I've brought an end to the war. Uh, you win, David. Look at all the lives I've saved. Can I get a belt? Some silver? Now, this is the typical spin that Joab puts on his rebellion, which is the ends justify the means. And it's somehow always for your kingdom, David. It's always for you, even while it is painfully obvious. This isn't about David or his kingdom. It's about Joab, his ego, his own deluded sense of control. So when we look at Joab, another kind of rebel, right? Different kind of rebel. I think what we need to see is a very sobering warning to the church, especially its leaders. Uh, for anyone who claims to serve the kingdom of God, uh, 
and calls upon Jesus as Lord, Lord, while doing some, some wonderful good works in his name, while living quite out of step with his word and his ways when certain people aren't looking. Let us all take heed today, uh, yours truly very much included, and examine ourselves to see if we are actually serving in a way worthy of the gospel. If not, we need to repent before it's too late because Joab does not repent and he certainly does not escape the wrath of the king. Joab, after killing Absalom, has another mess on his hands here and he has to figure out how to frame this, this news of Absalom's death to, to David because he's certainly not going to hear it as good news. But this leads me to my final point, which is the bad news is the good news. The bad news is the good news. In verse 19, Ahimaaz, a faithful servant of David, rejoicing in the victory, asked to be the first to, to share this good news. But Joab forbids, forbids him from going because Absalom is dead, right? which David would certainly not want to hear. And Joab also omits any details about how Joab or how Absalom died. And Joab decides to send his own messenger, right? an unnamed uh, Cushite to David. But then afterwards, you know, he fixed the problem. He changes his mind and he, and he lets Ahimaaz go. To, to share the news, to report the news as well. And the Cushite, the first, he was supposed to actually be the first messenger, I think. He got this head start, and this was probably Joab's plan. But Ahimaaz finds a way to get to David first. Doesn't quite go as Joab planned. Now David's been, understandably, on the edge of his seat, waiting for some news, especially about his son. And to David's surprise, and to, actually to his delight, there's not uh, one messenger, but two messengers on the horizon. And the first one is a guy he knows well, Ahimaaz. And the first thing that he shouts to King David in verse 28 is, Shalom, translated here as all is well. Sadly, was also David's very last recorded words to his son Absalom. And after Ahimaaz shares the good news with David about his victory, the only question or response that he has, verse 29, is the question, is it well with the young man Absalom? And it catches Ahimaaz off guard, right? He, he actually sounds quite flustered. Uh, he ends up repeating himself, and he seems to stumble with his words. This is even more pronounced in the Hebrew. He just kind of doesn't know what to say. So David is like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to press you anymore. And, and he eagerly moves on to question the Cushite. Look with me at verse 2, or 32. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. 
And it doesn't take David anything to read between the lines here. He knew exactly what he meant. And in that terrible moment, he knew that his son Absalom was dead. All hope of shalom or peace with his son was out the window. It was gone. And the next verse is truly one of the most heart-rending moments in the entire Bible. It's a vivid record of a father's inconsolable and howling grief. Verse 33, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now it's clear that in spite of Absalom's horrific rebellion, David still very much loved his son. My son. What kind of heart is this? What kind of heart is this otherworldly heart with such longing for the vilest of ungrateful and traitorous sinners? What we mustn't forget here is that when God chose David to be king, the Lord's intention, his first intention, was to select someone who would display his heart. He wanted to choose a man that would be after his own heart. That is, a man that would image or reflect God's very heart to his people. Because God, God would speak of himself ultimately as Israel's true king and father. Now, try as he did, David simply did not have the righteousness, the wisdom, or the power to save Absalom from the consequences of his own sin and rebellion. So in the end, David's guttural cry would be this impossible wish. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom? I instead of you, O Absalom. Little did David know that when he made this cry, he would foretell the way that God, the king and father, would ultimately bring out salvation for the worst of sinners. A salvation that would show God's perfect love and meet the demands of his perfect law, his perfect justice at the same time, answering both the question of justice and love. The Lord would bring about this salvation through the very son that God had promised to David unconditionally before he made a huge mess of everything. Promised that this son would come from his line and this son would succeed where David and Absalom and every other son after him would fail miserably. And the son of David would not usher in his reign by mercilessly killing his enemies. 
No. Instead, his eternal reign would begin with him dying in the place of his enemies. The son would give his life for them, literally step into their place, I instead of you, and take upon himself our curse, die like an accursed man, hanging on a tree, pierced for our transgressions, and he take upon himself the chastisement that would bring us shalom, peace, all that would be made well. And because this son, whose name is Jesus, Joshua, God saves, he'd be sent by the Father for this very purpose, to deal gently with sinners, to provide true cover for them in their unrighteousness and in their need, to protect them from the wrath to come. You know this one, John 3.16, it tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And King Jesus doesn't stay back, right? He goes out. He goes out way ahead of us. He gives his life as a ransom for many lost sons and daughters because his life isn't worth just 10,000, 20,000. His blood is worth and worthy enough to atone for the sins of the whole world. So back to this original question of what's your life worth to God? What's our life worth to God? What sense of worth can I actually build my life on and have a hope for the future in? Good news that I have for you today is that Jesus values you and everyone here enough that he thinks you're worth giving up his very own life for. Now, who could possibly value us more or love us more truly than that? That's a sure foundation. Now, if you haven't put your faith in this good news yet or would like to, please come see me or pastor or any of the elders sitting up here at, or standing up here after the service. Love to talk with you. But if you have experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus and come to know life as a child of God, knowing that he has died for you and will one day raise you up with himself, my prayer is that we would abide in this, his word. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen.